Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, give us joy through Jesus, through his presence in our lives. We ask in his name. Amen. So if you read the theme for today's worship, you notice the question I present is, why is Mary Magdalene in all four Gospels the first person to encounter the resurrected Jesus? There's a common saying, something of a truism, that the sickest child gets the most attention. So I want to look at Mary, three incidents, incidents in her life, and talk about the sickness that she was experiencing and that also we ourselves experience. The first incident takes place in John chapter 8. Mary Magdalene is paraded by the religious elite into the town square, and they say to Jesus, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now the law says she should die, be stoned to death. What do you think? Jesus pauses, writes something on the ground. My theory is he wrote Dan. Could be your name. He straightens up and he says, let the person who has no sin cast the first stone. And off they scurry, one by one. And then Jesus looks at Mary Magdalene and he says, is there no one to condemn you? No one, Lord. And these are some of the most powerful words of the whole Bible. Neither do I condemn you. You're forgiven. You have received God's gracious love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And then he says something that shows us the power of a no-condemnation statement. He says, go and don't continue sinning. Uh, you may not see that in your Bibles. It's present tense. It's an ongoing action. Are you ever sick because of your sin? Are you ever sick of sinning? Are you ever sick of feeling shame and guilt and fear? That's what Mary was sick with. The second incident is from John chapter 12. We are told that Mary Magdalene came into the cluster of disciples and she stooped over and took a very expensive bottle of perfume. How expensive, pastor? 
We know from the Gospel of Mark, it was equal to a year's wage. She pours the perfume on his feet, anoints his feet, dries his feet with her hair, and Judas pipes up. Of course it's Judas. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? And Jesus says, Judas, don't you realize that she was preparing my body for burial? Now that seems kind of strange. How did Mary know that Jesus was going to die? Well, in the previous chapter, John chapter 11, Jesus raises a four-day dead Lazarus, and the religious rulers say, we've got to put a stop to this. If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And we're going to lose our place, the temple, and our nation. So from that time on, they were plotting to arrest Jesus and to have him killed. And Mary perceives that something is astir here. And this may be her last chance to show her devotion, her love to Jesus. Do you have any friends or family members? Perhaps they have a terminal disease. Perhaps they're in a coma. Perhaps they're under hospice care. Are you sick with that feeling that you're going to lose your family member? You're going to lose the person you love and there's nothing you can do about it? The third incident is our text. Jesus has risen, but Mary doesn't know that. She sees the tomb empty and she weeps uncontrollably and she says, I just want to see him one last time, even if it's just his body. She hurries to the tomb even before the sun is up. She is so eager to see Jesus one last time, even if it's a lifeless corpse. Jesus says, Mary. That's kind of exciting, isn't it? There's a, a twinge of joy there that he knows our names and that he wants to give us attention. But oh boy, there's so much more to come in this text. So much more joy in this text. She immediately, and I'm imagining the scene, she rushes to him and throws her arms around him and gives him a big hug. And then one of the strangest verses in the Bible, Jesus says, don't hold on to me. A lot of the older versions had, don't touch me. What is going on here? 
Jesus is saying to Mary, yes, you have me. Right now, your arms are wrapped around me in this moment. And yes, that's a joyful thing. But there's so much more, Mary. I'm going to go to my father and he will send you the Holy Spirit who will remind you of everything I did and said. If we could interview Mary, she doesn't just want Jesus to go back to teaching and performing miracles. She wants something more. She wants Jesus. She wants him in a personal, visceral, palpable way. She wants the experience of his presence, not just in that moment, but for every day of her life. Mary, when I send the Holy Spirit, you will experience my presence every day. You will experience my love, my concern. You will experience my forgiveness, my grace, my mercy. But I have to go to the Father. And the Holy Spirit is going to be sent into your heart and into the hearts of all believers. And that's going to be a joy inexpressible that nothing, not even suffering or difficulty or trouble or tribulation can rob you of. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be in you. I want to share a concluding thought. Those disciples and even the early Christian church in those first centuries after Jesus' death and resurrection, they had no interest in marking Jesus' grave. Not a whit. What do you do when you go to a grave? You remember the person, but they're not really present. Steve, you probably know this too, up in Mountain View Cemetery for over a year, there was a gentleman who parked in his car and when it wasn't raining, sat next to the tombstone of his teenage son. What do you do when you're at a grave? All you can do is remember. You know, every major religion in this world knows the tomb site, the grave site of their founder, of their leading teachers. But we don't know where Jesus' grave is. Now you say, wait just one doggone minute, Pastor. 
In Jerusalem, there was a church of the Holy Sepulchre. That's a guess. And the tomb, if we went and sat there and were silent and contemplative, it would never really accomplish anything wonderful. And by the way, the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre and the church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, that was Constantine's mother's doing. Constantine became emperor in 312. For so, so for over 300 years, the, Christ, the Christians did not care at all to mark Jesus' grave as a place of devotion or in modern terminology, as a holy site. Uh, we went to a holy site in Israel in 1998, and people were sitting there and praying and contemplating, and, and my wife turns to me and she says, it's just a rock. <laughs> if you go to the church of the nativity down in the basement there's this star and my wife turned to me and she said it's just a star the early christians those first disciples saw no need to mark the place of jesus burial because they didn't want to remember him they wanted to experience him. And for them, Jesus, every day of their lives, was a living reality. The one who suffered on the cross is with us when we suffer. The one who rose from the dead screams victory when we are defeated. You know, Martin Luther had a lot of despondency in his life, and he would take a piece of chalk, and whenever he felt down, he would write on his desk or on the wall, Vivit, V-I-T, I mean V-I-V-I-T, which means he lives. One day, somebody went into Luther's study, and it must have been a particularly difficult day because Vivit was on the desk, it was on the walls, it was everywhere they looked. He lives. And not only does he live, he lives in me. And he lives in you. And that will give you lasting, exciting, inexhaustible joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is present in our lives, in us. Help us, even when things are difficult, to live in that reality and to rejoice in what he has accomplished, to rejoice in his presence today in our lives, and especially to rejoice and have joy over the future glory 
that awaits all of us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.